For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Welcome to the Fix Your Sciatica podcast, where we meet with experts and clients and discuss how to manage your sciatica and low back pain without the use of medications or surgery. I'm your host, Dr. Ashley Mack, and I'm a physical therapist as well as the founder of iFixYourSciatica.com, a go-to resource for pain management. When it comes to sciatica pain and core function, a lot of people, and I myself have been guilty of identifying core function as not just the back muscles, but also the ab muscles. But the truth of the matter is, is that that's only 50% of what the core is. You also have your upper aspect, which is going to be your diaphragm and your diaphragm function. But an area that often gets overlooked is going to be the pelvic floor. And a few episodes ago, I had the opportunity to speak with another pelvic floor physical therapist, and we were talking about postpartum care and what happens with the pelvic floor post-birth. But also, there's a large dysfunction or uh, um, issues that challenge the male pelvic floor. And today's guest, I had the opportunity of getting introduced via LinkedIn. LinkedIn, if you're looking at trying to get in touch with professionals, it's a fantastic way to get that. Um, This is an unpaid promotion for LinkedIn, but um, I had the opportunity to meet Dr. Matthew Johnston, who is a male pelvic floor physical therapist up in Maine. And he had some really great insights and I had to invite him to the episode so we can talk all things pelvic floor and how that can actually relate to the pain that we're experiencing. And then also some really unique things that might actually happen uh, amongst men. So Matt, Matt, so great to see you. Happy Saturday, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm excited for the opportunity to talk about physical therapy, pelvic health, men's health, and uh, every, everywhere else that leads us. So. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a really, um, I just know that it's a, it's a growing field. There's more professionals getting involved. There's more professionals even knowing that pelvic physical therapy can even be a thing. And so... Uh, Matt, if you can, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself, what your journey is. How did you get to where you're at today? Absolutely. Yeah. So I am originally from Philadelphia. I went to Temple for my physical therapy school and my undergraduate uh, degrees and uh, currently living just outside of Portland, Maine. Um, so my wife is also a physical therapist and she had a job opportunity up here in, in Maine. Uh, so she works for the Maine Celtics, the G League team for the, the Boston Celtics. So, um, so I came up and just happened to, ha- you know, have the opportunity to work with a great group of people in pelvic health. Uh, so I originally treated orthopedics, vestibular conditions, and uh, a couple of years after I graduated, I started becoming interested in pelvic health uh, for men specifically, and just had the opportunity to come up here when she had that opportunity to find just happened to be a program already set up and um, a full caseload of male patients that had pelvic health concerns. So I treat everything from post-prostatectomy issues, cancer rehab, um, pain issues, continence issues for bowel and bladder, um, and, you know, hernia operations pre and post, 
Um, and then really anything just like unresolved hip and back pain that may also have a, a pelvic component. Wow. Yeah. We're going to take a deep dive into all those different aspects of today. Quick little side uh, listeners. I myself have actually moved out to California uh, from New Jersey because my wife was actually offered a job out here. And I said, you know what? My wife had the opportunity, gave me the opportunity to explore uh, and grow the things that I've built. And I was really excited to be able to take this next chapter and move on to California and let her take those next steps in her career. So being able to hear that from you, Matt, is uh, is very, very cool. So let's talk about this pelvic floor. I think a lot of people think when they hear the word pelvic floor, they, they have a general area. It's like belly button and below. So if you can tell us a little bit more about the pelvic floor, like what is it made of, I, I guess, and, and why is it so important to just general function? Absolutely. Yeah. I think, you know, the conversation, I guess, going forward, I will speak to my experiences treating uh, patients who identify as male um, in their pelvic floor issues. Um, so I guess I'll, I'll speak to, to that kind of moving forward, uh, but definitely riders treat all, all types of patients. So um, the pelvic floor is the really the group of muscles where you sit on. Um, so bone in the front of the pelvis to tailbone, and then between the two sitting bones. And their job is, is really to give support, um, but they also have a like muscular function in like bowel, bladder, sexual functions. Um, but they also play a role similar to the, the rest of the trunk in breathing, posture, um, lifting, moving, sport, you, know, you name it. There, there's definitely a relationship there. Um, and I think another kind of interesting concept, especially when we're talking about hernia issues, is like pressure management. How does, how does the pelvic floor deal with pressure issues? Um, and that's that can be all the way from like Olympic lifters and weightlifters, crossfitters, um, to the the post prostatectomy folks who have a change in their their pressure management system. So um, pressure management is important for like coughing, sneezing, um, lifting, breathing, all that kind of stuff too. So it kind of actually weaves into everything that we do. Um, I think what's really interesting, and uh, and you probably discussed it with your patients as well is that whenever we're doing a specific activity or even let's take a step back, let's talk about exercise specifically. And if we are doing say a bicep curl, a bicep curl, you're taking a dumbbell or something and you are bending at your elbow and you are uh, bringing your hand up to your shoulder. So you're getting your bicep muscle to actually contract. But what's really interesting is that, okay, you may be specifically consciously thinking about contracting your bicep muscle but every other muscle in your body actually has to contract in some way to be able to provide the support and be able to move. And so what that means is that the human body doesn't work in isolation. We need to have all the various different components that are necessary to be able to provide the support so we can actually move efficiently. And so I think as we're talking about that, this concept of pressure management, and I love pressure management, um, love it as in it's exciting to hear someone else talk about it. Um, I actually learned most about uh, initially about pressure management from uh, Dr. Uh, Sarah Duvall, who was actually up in like New England up by you. And I learned a lot about being able to say, okay, not only do you need to have a lot of tension in say like the front abs, we also have the back abs, top diaphragm, and then lower aspects, but not only just being able to manage the pressure, but having that pressure change or um, stabilize as you're, as you're doing specific activities. And you brought up this really interesting concept about uh, bowel and bladder function. 
And whenever I see people and whenever people start off with maybe even the sciatic protocol, we go through a little red flag screening process. The red flag screening process, one of the questions is, have you had any sort of changes in your bowel or your bladder function? Now, this wasn't one of the the pre-interview questions I sent over to you, but um, one thing that really came to mind was when someone has bowel and bladder issues, how can you tell if it is a pelvic floor issue or is it an actual spinal issue uh, or is it an actual systemic like organ issue? How, How did you determine that as a pelvic floor physical therapist? I think that's a great question. <laughs> that's something I have, you know, asked myself, you know, especially kind of being new into this uh, pelvic health field, um, that a lot of the spinal pathology issues for red flags are very similar to the what we would consider for pelvic health. Um, and, okay, so if someone's coming to see me for, well, I'm having, you know, bowel incontinence or urinary incontinence, how do I know if that's a red flag problem? Um, I think first and foremost, like put it into the picture of the rest of them. Um, just because someone's coming for a referral for uh, a bowel or bladder issue doesn't mean that they don't have anything else going on. So the same screening that you would do with patients for orthopedics is, is very similar to what I would do. Um, I, I think any sort of like retention where a patient can't physically, you know, urinate um, is is important to know, um, or like complete loss, like. Um, not just a leak with a cough or a sneeze or something that's tied to activity, but I had a full emptied bladder without any control. So I think that's, those are kind of two big important things um, to understand, well, is this something more serious? So I think, you know, a big word to providers is not just asking patients about, well, do you have you had any change to your bowel or bladder habits? That's, that's very, very vague. Um, but can you tell me about, do you have any problems starting or stopping urine flow or, um, have you ever had a complete loss of your bowel functions? Have you ever had an accident without meaning to? I think those definitely provide a little bit more value. Um, the saddle anesthesia, so numbness and tingling in the groin area where a bike seat would be is definitely an important piece. Um, but some of our pelvic patients have that in related to certain nerve conditions. So um, again, putting it in the big picture with what else is going on um, and using a lot of the systemic red flag screenings that we would do with general patients as well. Uh, pelvic health is very, very similar to orthopedics. Uh, but now I have that lens of well, what's actually happening in this system that is the pelvic floor uh, on top of what's happening in the orthopedic or, you know, person uh, as a whole. I, uh, I had to unmute myself there, but um, yeah, it's a very interesting. I'm so glad that you brought up this concept of putting everything into context. Um, things in isolation, uh, it's really hard to be able to identify, well, what's going on. And so being able to take a step back and say, well, what other things are going on and how does this relate to the problem at hand? Um, I think it becomes very challenging when uh, a clinician or a practitioner is exhausted or uh, overworked where they don't have the opportunity to take the time and ask, what are these other things? And, uh, listeners, in other episodes I've talked about, I think I, I brought up the importance of being able to ask the right questions and being able to get more information. And um, this is often how I would work with people is at the first session together, it's actually mostly question 
uh, questions asked. We're doing a lot of information. We might not be able to get all the information, but it's important for us to be able to get some sort of idea of what's going on. And we don't understand that unless we ask the right questions um, that are going to be very important. And you brought this really uh, this, this concept, this not, it's not a concept, but, uh, you brought up incontinence and throughout my studies, throughout my experience, there's a lot of different variations of incontinence. And so I don't think, uh, too many people know that there's various different types. Would you be able to briefly share with us the different types of incontinence that are out there and, and what could be some of the common issue or causes to them? Sure. So something like stress incontinence is, um, a loss of urine with uh, changes in pressure. So a cough, a sneeze, um, a movement, a lift. Um, and that's that can sometimes be linked to changes in the pelvic floor. Uh, for the patients that I see a lot, um, a lot of the patients who have gone through uh, prostate cancer surgeries or procedures, they will often have some form of stress urinary incontinence. Um, so they'll commonly go from sitting to standing, loss of urine will occur. Um, and that's that is a, probably the most common example. Um, men usually don't have urinary incontinence. Um, it's usually like one or 2% over the age of like 75, um, but just because their anatomy is so different. Um, when we're talking about patients um, on the female side, much different situation. You know, other things can cause that. So stress urinary incontinence is, is number one. Um, uh, urge incontinence. So urgency is the feeling of I have to go to the bathroom and I have to go right now. Um, it's usually very stressful for patients. Um, it can be, you know, occur with triggers like putting a key in the door or pulling in the driveway, um, having your hands, um, in running water or washing the dishes. Uh, so those things definitely can cause this all of a sudden I had no urge and now I have to go and I have to go now. Um, and that can, that, that signal intensity can lead to urgencies or, um, excuse me, uh, incontinence situations. So, I'm washing the dishes, all of a sudden, you have this really strong urge, I can't make it into the bathroom on time. Um, you can have a mix of those, um, where you have kind of features of, of both. Um, you can have a functional incontinence, so common in knee and hip replacement patients. So just got my knee replaced, um, I have to go to the bathroom, but because of that limitation, I can't get there on time, and I, I may have an accident. Um, which probably happens a lot more than um, orthopedic clinicians realize, um, I never knew that was a thing. Um, I never, I never had a patient tell me about that. Um, oh, by the way, how's your rehab going? Oh, well, I've been having this urinary issue, you know, getting to the bathroom all the time. And then, you know, as I've been looking at more research related to pelvic health conditions, and, uh, that is a big concern for a lot of patients. And I think something that as orthotherapists, um, and other providers, you know, are we asking those questions? How is your rehab going? You know, have you had any problems getting to the bathroom all the time? It's a super, super simple question. Um, so those are, those are definitely the big types of incontinence issues. So we have um, urge, stress, and, and functional incontinence. Uh, you were talking a lot about um, the urinary like bladder function. Um, would this also be uh, related to, uh, say, bowel movements? Yes, yeah. So fecal incontinence um, is can be a um, side effect of radiation treatment. It can be going back to our pressure management um, deficits. So uh, high Olympic level weightlifters, athletes um, can have some fecal incontinence. Um, 
in men specifically uh, with high level like weightlifting, crossfitting, uh, because they are lifting such high loads, their pressure system pushes down on their pelvic floor and their their um, bowels just can't control that and their sphincters can't control that pressure and, and that's where they have some incontinence issues. Um, we also see that again with radiation uh, and then sometimes with just like muscle changes over time, atrophy, um, sometimes that can occur. Um, in, my, in the patient, patient population I see, those are usually the biggest common, most common thing. So, We are going to take a quick break to tell you about our awesome new program called the Sciatica Protocol. If you don't have the time to see a professional, but are tired of trying to figure out this recovery on your own, then the Sciatica Protocol is for you. Harness the power of a knowledgeable physical therapist through your phone. It takes no more than seven minutes per day, and it is designed to help you recover as quickly as possible. It is simple to start, and all you need to do is log into ifixyoursciatica.com forward slash the dash sciatica dash protocol and fill out the nine question quiz to begin. The link for the program is in today's show notes. Um, I'm going to take a step back and look at pelvic floor rehab, and we'll say it specifically with, uh, with male rehab, um, with your experience, like, why do you think it, this has been this subject or this area of expertise has been uh, so rare or, um, one from a, from a professional standpoint, but also number two, from a consumer standpoint, um, why, why are so people, so many people either, um, not aware of pelvic floor, uh, rehab or yeah. Yeah. Sorry. That was a, that was a very generalized question, but, um, you know, this is something that I've learned when I was in school, but encountering all these things across my professional career, a lot of people don't know about pelvic floor rehab. And I have my theories. I think that people, because it's that they call it the nether region for a reason, uh, it's quite embarrassing. My interpretation as is it is quite embarrassing and very vulnerable to be able to seek help for that specific area. So either people just look at it as saying, this is a normal part of the process. They don't search or they don't tell other people. I think that's kind of my experience of pe- the reasons as to why people aren't known uh, about it. But because you see this on such a frequent basis, like this is your main patient population, what are your theories or what have you observed when it comes to why this isn't more widespread? Yeah, I think on the professional side of things, I think it's not brought up enough. Um, it can be woven into a curriculum, not just a one, two hour lecture on pelvic health. Here's what the you know, main diagnoses and maybe some basics of treatments and ideas. Um, and unfortunately, most of that has been centered around the female population postpartum specifically. Um, Because for the average clinician, that's the person that's going to be walking in the door. Um, The person um, pre, during, or post-pregnancy, or maybe the older individual with the like urinary incontinence. Like that's, I think, who the general clinician might encounter the most and how can they screen and refer or treat to that person within the confines of their setting. Um, So I think it's not talked enough about and it doesn't have to be like, well, we have a semester on pelvic health. It can be as we're going over the hip or the pelvis or the spine here, here is how pelvic health could be related to that concept and talking about, well, when we're talking about spine strengthening or core strengthening or hip strengthening, here's the implications on that for these people. 
Um, so I think it can be woven in better. Um, I think also as our profession moves towards that like primary care role um, and primary care physical therapy is becoming more popular or like mainstream. Um, well, how can we take care of that person from, a, again, a general screening health musculoskeletal perspective? We have to learn about pelvic health. We have to learn about bowel and bladder habits and constipation and sexual functioning. Um, so I think from a professional side of things, that's, you know, how it's introduced in physical therapy school is probably the first issue. It's kind of thought of, oh, by the way, this is a subspecialty and you'll, you'll learn more about that once you graduate or if you work with a mentor or something like that. Um, and then, you know, as we emerge into the profession as new graduates, um, no one talks about it. It's, it's not a, it's a, again, that subspecialty kind of like mysterious thing. Um, and I think the place where I work now and the, the clinic that I used to be a part of previously did a really great job of screening patients. And a lot of patients are referred internally. Um, oh, we just worked on your knee. You know, do you have any of these problems? Great. Go see, go see Matt um, or go see this other therapist. So I think as a profession, we can do a, a much, much better job of referring to each other um, for our individual skill sets. You know, um, I'm not great at seeing ACLs, but I'm going to refer my patients who may have need a need in that area to that provider. Why aren't we doing that for pelvic health issues? Um, so often in general orthopedics, we see this, you know, patient walk in and I, you know, I've definitely have been guilty of this myself. You know, Oh, I just had my prostate removed. Um, I'm coming in for my knee. That's been nagging me. And Oh, I just got that surgery. It's a great time for me to get my knee um, rehabbed. I would just said, oh, great. How's treatment going? Oh, it's fine. I'm better. End of conversation. Well, we asked one more question about, well, are you still having problems with leakage? Um, that patient's most likely going to say yes. Uh, even years and years and years go by and patients are still leaking urine. Um, that is not normal. Um, and there's there's uh, there's hope for those patients to get improvements. Um, so it, again, it just takes one little question and, you know, how can we frame ourselves as, and, you know, I think that builds an awful amount of trust in your you know, between a provider and your patient about, wow, they're actually asking me that one step question further. Um, and I think that is, that doesn't happen a lot, unfortunately. Um, so I think from a, a professional side of things that those are definitely the, some of the main things. Um, I think from a pelvic health perspective, the field is still emerging. Uh, again, it's still seen as this like kind of mysterious subspecialty. Um, it is not, it's growing. Um, the men's side of things are like still 30 years behind female pelvic health, um, you know, n um, awareness and, and, you know, clinical development. So that's something that's, it's getting better. It's growing. I mean, even the two years that I've been doing this, uh, it has grown immensely and there's more resources and more training for people out there interested. Uh, but I think on the patient side of things, you know, they're not getting asked the right questions, I think. Um, and they're, I think from a society perspective, people are getting, like you commented before, is like people aren't comfortable talking like right out in the open. Um, I think most of my patients are because they're coming with that expectation that I'm going to see a pelvic health therapist. Um, and most of my referral sources are from urology, um, primary care, um, general surgery who deal with herniation, you know, uh, hernia issues. So they're coming with that kind of mindset. They've been dealing with this issue for a while. They've gone through a lot of the testing related to the pelvis and genital urinary system. Um, so they kind of have that expectation. So I think they're much more comfortable talking to me about it um, than maybe the first line of defense, which is maybe primary care 
um, or there are other, you know, physical therapists. Oh, by the way, I have this issue going on. Yeah. You, um, questions are so powerful. Um, and I love the fact that you brought up this concept of building trust. You have to have a relationship and you have to trust the person that you're working with. And that's going to actually allow you to get much better outcomes. I think that there are a couple of different research articles talking about just being able to trust in your provider or having that relationship allows you to have some better outcomes. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and Google that and add that, um, the, that research to the show notes because I think it's very, very important. Um, the moment you feel dismissed from your provider, that that uh, strategic uh, therapeutic alliance kind of gets lost because you don't feel heard and you don't have the opportunity to be able to say these are the issues that I have. Um, so pelvic pelvic health, pelvic floor rehab, as you said, it's a subspecialty. People still don't really know uh, about it. And uh, for 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 us men, uh, like the only two pelvic exams that we probably go through is is uh, maybe three is like the testicular like self exam to, like for testicular cancers. Also, we'll do the testicular exam or the hernia exam that we would go in from uh, from like a um, like a physical, and then you have your prostate exam, which kind of well, I think I, I forgot what age it happens at around forty or fifty. Um, and so we have those three three exams, and that's about it. Like that that is. That is what we have. And so, and it's a very sensitive area. So for the folks who are thinking, all right, well, all right, here's Ashley and Matt talking about the importance of pelvic floor rehab. What am I to expect when I go in and actually get assessed? Like to walk us through what that evaluative process is like. So it's not a surprise when we go through that. Yeah. I want to actually echo back what you just said, because I think that's a, a huge topic. Um, it's something I discuss with my patients all the time. And if you look at the, how, um, you know, the medical screening process goes from childhood, yeah, you're right. You know, men will only get, you know, maybe testicles examined during puberty or childhood, um, undecided testicles or testicular development. Um, and then they're kind of on their own. I'm like, oh, do this self-exam, which I don't think anyone does. Um, and should be doing a lot more once, at least once a month. Um, and then really nothing happens um, until something's wrong or there's a problem. Um, yeah, maybe there's some like prostate cancer screenings as people probably hit 50s or 60s um, even. Um, and that's a, like a the digital rectal exam. Um, but beyond that, if there's not a problem, no one's examining things or no one's even talking about it. So I think um, from a medical perspective, and a physical therapy perspective, like if we want to be treated as primary providers, we need to be talking about things. Um, and obviously it's not our place to, to be doing rectal exams or, you know, prostate screenings on people, but, you know, sometimes patients make comments to us and, um, oh, by the way, I'm like, I'm going to, or you noticed, you know, they're going to the bathroom three times in an, an hour session. Oh, that's not quite normal. Um, and, and, oh, have you checked in with the doctor about that? Um, um, but I think, and this is where I can, I encourage my patients who have seen me um, to talk to their family members, you know, their father, their brothers, their friends about, they don't necessarily have to go into the depths of, of what, why they saw treatment, but, you know, talking about if they hear something, talk about it, you know, so often men don't talk about it. Um, female patients are talking about Kegels from the age 12 on. Um, and they're getting yearly gynecological exams and their primary cares are asking about these questions. It's like radio silence in men until either the, the, there's a problem 
or you know they're getting maybe close to prostate cancer screening age. So uh, I think just to to kind of drive that home is a lot of it is asking patients good questions and talking about it in your circles. You know, especially some forms of prostate cancer are super aggressive and they can emerge early in the 40s or 50s, um, and they usually are linked to family genetics. So you know, if, if dad or a brother has it, everyone should get screened children, nephews, that kind of stuff. Uh, so I think that was a good point and kind of a, a tangent on <laughs> the original question. I love but, it. Thank you. Um, Thank you for elaborating on that. I think it's huge. Yeah. So what does a pelvic exam look like? Or if someone comes to pelvic therapy, what does it look like? Um, it, it looks very similar to orthopedic physical therapy um, or general physical therapy of a lot of questions. Tell me about what's going on. When did this happen? You know, the, the regular screening you know, for red flag questions that we would normally ask. Uh, but tell me about like what normal is for you. Like how often do you urinate? How often do you have balance? Um, sexual activity, you know, are you able to get an erection? You know, is ejaculation painful? Um, so those things, um, and you know, well, what makes it better? What makes it worse? Like those kind of general history things, definitely a great place to start. And then I can kind of get an understanding of how a patient, how, what their comfort level is. What words they, do they choose? Um, uh, are they sensitive to a specific topic, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, and then, you know, if we're talking about physical exam piece of things, again, you know, I'm screening the spine, all these nerves come from the spine. So uh, the regular spine exam, range of motion, um, manual therapy oriented things um, to rule out, like, are there symptoms? Does it have a component of this? I'm looking at their rib cage, how they breathe, um, their hip, their mechanics, you know, if their pain happens when they leak, when they lift something, well, let's look at that. Um, so it's a, there's a lot of functional things that happen to it. Um, so all of that looks very, very similar. Um, um, maybe the things that don't look so similar, uh, I'm looking at their abdomen. I'm looking at, um, do they have a herniation or a, a diastasis rectus abdominis? Um, what does their cough look like? Can they breathe? Can, you know, do they have a bunch of incision sites on their abdomen for, you know, their gallbladder and appendix? Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. 
Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Um, so I'm, I'm looking at that kind of from that view. And then specifically to the pelvis or pelvic floor, um, there's two main parts. Um, but everything we've done up until this point, I'm kind of assessing, asking, and, and looking at, well, what, what is the pelvis doing during this? Or what is the pelvic floor doing this? Um, so for a specific pelvic floor situation, um, if they're coming in with like genital pain, uh, penile or testicular, uh, I'm looking at those structures palpating, well, how do they move? How do they, um, is, is there a, a difference from my expectation, um, about positioning or posture, that kind of stuff. Uh, and then I'm looking at the pelvic floor itself from an external view. How does it contract? How does it relax? What happens if I elongate to bear down uh, for a bowel movement, for example? Um, and what happens if I cough, like sustained or rapid pressure to the body? Um, what happens to that pelvic floor? Does it respond the way we think it does? Um, and at least that gives me a general idea of what's going on. I also press around or palpate um, that surface kind of external layer of the pelvic floor um, to understand what's going on there. Uh, and then I think the place where most patients in general are a little bit wary, a little skeptical, um, is the internal pelvic exam. Um, so for male patients, it's a, a digital exam through the rectum to assess the deepest layer of the pelvic floor. Um, and if patients aren't comfortable with that, we don't need to do it. Um, it's not a necessity, uh, but it does tell us a lot of specific information about how those muscles are working. Um, and that, that exam looks kind of similar to the external exam. Um, well, can you contract? Can you relax? What happens? Um, a lot of it's palpating, understanding how those, you know, is there a difference side to side. Um, I think that one of the biggest differences I, I kind of see a lot um, in patients who have pain is muscles around the hip, obturator internus makes up the wall of the pelvic floor. Um, so, so often that is a driver for painful problems and painful problems in the hip and spine and, and pelvic floor too. Um, and what does that tell me? You know, and obviously part of that is treatment into those areas. Can we, can we get this muscle to move better, become less stiff? become less irritated um, and kind of diving into treatment. Like we can do treatment right then and there. Um, but a lot of it is like educating on, well, this is what we're finding. This is why we're doing it. Um, you know, I think patients are much less reluctant if they understand why, well, why, why is it important for you to do this kind of very invasive, sensitive thing? Um, and I think a lot of it is, well, I'm looking for your familiar symptoms. I'm looking for your symptom reproduction. I'm looking for the, drivers. I'm looking for differences side to side. I want to know how this normally functions for you as an individual. Um, and is it, is it doing something not expected? Um, very similar again to, you know, an orthopedic examination, you know, if you have problems bending forward, I need to see you bending forward. And then we kind of dive into that, you know, what does your hamstring tension look like neural tension, spine movement, you know, all that stuff. Um, so you know, I think in a nutshell, that is the pelvic exam, um, 
you know, obviously that can kind of dive deeper depending on sport and life demands and that kind of thing. You know, there's assessments that can be done in a variety of positions. So um, I think that's the basics. Well, I really appreciate you sharing that with us. I think that's one of the big things is that, okay, someone thinks that or someone knows or understands that they, they would be benefiting from uh, pelvic floor physical therapy or rehab, but their biggest fear is one, having someone go and look down there, but then also two, not really quite knowing what to expect. So I'm very, very thankful for you to be able to share that. And it really um, it, it, it brings down the barriers, right? Brings down the barriers and allows people to say, okay, well, this is a normal part this is a medical procedure. It takes away that, um, and, and I'll say, you know, the, the 15 year old me would be giggling this entire time, but being able to look at this as a medical provider and be able to understand this is what is necessary for us to be able to get the information, provide the treatment. It really, it, it makes it, it makes a ton of sense. And you said this multiple times during that explanation of being able to say, well, what is normal for you? And I think that's a very important part throughout your entire journey, uh, even for you listeners, is that when you are dealing with pain, again, pain is an individual experience. Yes, it's going to be an electrical and chemical signal that it travels from one body part and travels up through your brain. But how you process that information is entirely, it, it's you, it's your perception. And so if things are out of the, the blue, if they're uh, not normal in relation to what you've been experiencing, that is all we need. We need to be able to understand, well, what are the norm, norms for you? But um, early on, as you were going through this, um, you brought up a very interesting concept, which made me think about, okay, and I think you might have actually posted this on LinkedIn probably earlier this week about what are the norms uh, when it comes to bowel movements and uh, and and urinary frequency. Um, was that you who posted that, um, or maybe or maybe someone else? But I'm mean, going going along those lines, right? Um, have you come across any sort of just so that we can kind of get a better understanding of of some general norms or averages? Um, on average, what's like a normal uh, bowel movement uh, frequency, if you don't mind me asking? No, I think that's a good question. Um, I think some of the research says once per day, but I think a lot of it has to do with volume. Um, there's patients who go five times a day um, with very little volume each time. Um, and I think there's other patients who go um, once, but less frequently, larger volume. So I think bowel movements are more related to volume um, obviously it's not normal for patients to go, I think more than three or five days without a bowel movement, but, um, trying to understand what, what is normal for them. And, and again, some patients like think things are just, that's the way everyone else does it. Because again, no one talks about these things. So, um, so I think on the bowel side, it's, it's more about volume. Um, and I think on the urinary side for, um, certain age populations, you know, two hours to like three to four, um, for folks under maybe 50 or 60. So can they extend for, you know, a movie or, you know, a class at school, something like that, you know, they should have the capability to hold, you know, four or five hours. Um, as, as people get older, that changes, um, especially at nighttime, like, uh, over, you know, the age of 65 to 75, it's like one, you know, at night um, or 75, it's maybe, one to two times 
Um, so it, it kind of depends. And I, do, I think it too depends on the volume intake. You know, um, if you just went to the gym and drank a ton of liquid, um, you might go three times in an hour and that's okay. Um, you don't necessarily have a pelvic problem or bladder problem um, if that happens. Uh, but I think it's the, the constant, and I'm sure there's, there's definitely patients out there who've had these problems. Um, and it's a family joke that, uh, they go to the bathroom every hour or they don't leave the house without urinating. Um, so I think those types of things, there can be changes to those if you want them to be changed. Um, so often patients come in with a primary complaint of probably pain, um, or post-surgery, like, Oh, by the way, and I'll ask about urinary function. They're like, oh, well, I, you know, I urinate every 30 to 60 minutes. That's not a lot of time. Um, think about how much time that takes in your day to go to the restroom and wash your hands and all this stuff. Um, they might be coming for a pain problem, but they might have had an underlying frequency issue that led them to kind of, oh, by the way, we can work on this. Most, a lot, I think a lot of times that also kind of goes to the bowel movement side of things. They're coming for pain issues um, and be like, oh, I have that one like once every three days or something like that. And that's something we can improve on if they want to. And most patients are receptive once they're already in treatment. Yeah. So um, when it comes to uh, bowel movements, we're looking at really greater, like the aspects of volume. Um, and then uh, a little different when it comes to, to urinary, avoiding of the bladder. Um, I saw on social media, they talked about this concept of like the rule of 17 when it comes to like voiding the bladder. Have you heard that before? I'm not, I've heard like 10, oh. if you're, if you're like more than 10 per day kind of thing, that might be like something to consider. Uh, but yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm interested to know what the, this rule is. So the rule of 17, and I think I heard about this like back in, um, we'll say, uh, August, 2022, um, it was saying like, um, if you void your bladder, it should be like having a full bladder and understanding, making sure that you're not going to put yourself in a dysfunctional pattern is being able to like, and when you empty your bladder, it should take at least 17 seconds for you to fully avoid it, which means that you wait enough time for you to accumulate enough urine, but also anything way beyond that. If you're, you're urinating for a whole minute, you might've held that for way too long. So that was a really interesting, it was either 17 or 21. It's been so long. And I kind of thought about that in my head. And, and I, when I heard that, I actually started counting the number of seconds it took for me to fully avoid my bladder. But, um, yeah, now that I talked about it, have you have you heard have you heard anything like that? This is a, this is a you know completely off topic. But. <laughs> I actually have heard about this at a holiday party uh, this past year, and a friend of of my wife and I's uh, is a physician, and she she just brought this up, and we're all talking about it, and you know, so it's actually interesting because a mentor of mine um, sometimes will have patients track their you know how often they urinate with a bladder diary. And I think traditionally it has been based on this, like count the seconds and that will kind of tell you if you're having a small, medium or large urination. Um, and her um, very strong uh, opinion is that doesn't tell us much because people's velocities are different. Right. Um, and she, she really likes patients to, to measure the actual volume. Um, obviously that's not realistic for every setting or, you know, possibility or, you know, if they're you're the average person who has no quote unquote issues. Uh, but I think when we're talking about like physical therapy and clinical, I have a lot of my patients actually physically measure how much volume is coming out of them. So at the end of the day, I can say, well, you know, you only went one ounce or, you know, and that's not a lot. Well, why? And um, we also might look at the, the 
input um, into the system for fluid intake and then measure that against their output. And if, if there's a huge discrepancy, yeah, that might be, well, might be some like metabolic thing going on. Um, but yeah, I've heard, I have heard it. So I have heard of the second rule and, you know, if I'm getting like a very quick understanding of what's going on in a patient, sure. That might be a great way, but you know, we're kind of talking about um, issues in the pelvic floor conditions that people are coming in for. We really want to measure like the volume that's coming out. I love that. Um, I think it's huge. Uh, it's important for us to be able to objectively, objectively measure this, right? Um, unfortunately, pain is a subjective. We, and we try to objectify it as much as possible. But again, because it's such a unique experience, it's it's a little bit more challenging. But like again, for you listeners out there, the pain that you're going through is your unique experience. And so when we ask you, "How are you feeling?" we um, a, a large part of it is being able to understand like what your pain levels are for that day. And so when you are describing your pain levels and rating your pain levels on a scale of zero to 10, it's going to be based on your scale. So even if your pain is a two out of 10, but it's going to be a 10 out of 10 for another person, it doesn't really matter what that is a 10 out of 10 for another person. It's what you're going through. And I think it's important, especially when you're going through uh, something as in depth as a pelvic exam to be able to see what that volume is. And so I really appreciate you sharing that with us. And so we had the opportunity to take a really deep dive into what it looks like when it comes to uh, what the pelvic floor is, how it gets assessed in its overall function. So let's take a step back and apply it to, say, something like sciatica pain, right? Sciatica pain is it's the longest nerve. It's, it's, I think it is. Yeah, it is the longest nerve in the body. And because it's the longest nerve in the body, that there are many areas of where that nerve can get irritated. It can get irritated locally. But also if we're looking at pelvic floor function and its relation to pain, it can also be affected on a global basis as well. And so when you're working with clients who are, who are saying, I've tried everything, but I'm also having some issues with my pelvic floor, um, what have you seen uh, in relation to, say, like an irritation of sciatic nerve or any of the nerves extending from the spines, particularly the low back, and its relation with the pelvic floor? I think this is a great question because um, often I'll explain pelvic-related pain symptoms as sciatica going down the wrong path. Um, we see that in testicular pain. Um, patients often have will have seen the urology and unfortunately several different providers. Um, the scary things will have been ruled out. And well, maybe you should try pelvic therapy, um, and we will assess them. Um, spinally and find, oh, that's, that's like recreating all my pain. Um, so they may have nothing wrong with the testicle. Um, and I think that's a, a very similar parallel to someone who comes in with knee pain or leg pain and they have no back pain. And like, you know, I don't know why, you know, I have this issue. Maybe I get my hip replaced or some sort of other more serious intervention. And it's a, there's a spinal driver to that. Um, and again, there, there are certainly times where there's other things going on in the pelvic floor, abdomen, um, but maybe we clean up 80% of their symptoms with a spinal technique or spinal uh, treatment. So off the bat, this happens quite often. Um, pudendal nerve also is another big culprit. It has a very windy path through the pelvis, um, can cause a lot of irritation, symptoms, pain, um, especially when we're talking about genital pain or pelvic floor, or, you know, general pelvis pain. Um, so the same things that we would work on um, for someone coming with sciatica, um, neural tension, spinal mobility, neuromuscular, uh, neuromuscular strengthening and like conditioning stuff. 
but also like those healthy habits, sleep, eating, you know, stress management, that kind of stuff also applies. So the treatment is very similar parallel. We're just talking about applying it to a very simple, you know, different part of the body. Um, and we see a lot of patients that come in with pain complaints um, in the genitals, testicles, or pelvis that have these like nerve irritations. Maybe they have a history of sciatica. Um, maybe they don't. Uh, but sometimes we'll, we'll do a, a nerve stress test to the leg, you know, those straight leg raises and stuff. And that brings on their pelvic pain or it brings on their testicular pain or changes it. Um, and it's like a fork in the road. You know, it might be irritated or stiff down the, the sciatic nerve, but it's just affecting that pelvis for a variety of reasons. Maybe they had a predisposition for um, symptoms there or a risk factor or something like that. So um, pretty common. Um, and with good orthopedic seals, it's easy to treat. Um, and you don't have to necessarily do kind of, you know, as invasive treatment as people might think it might be. Sure, you might want to assess those areas and like, well, you're coming in with pelvic symptoms. We need to assess the pelvic floor um, and see how that's reacting. But a large driver might be the nerve or spine in of itself. Um, and then, okay, well, 20% is pelvic related and we can kind of clean that up after we're done um, with pelvic treatment and, and that kind of stuff. And I think that that's a big plug for patients who um, have unresolved sciatic issues or back pain or hip pain. Um, Again, asking that good question. Um, there's a really great screening protocol. Um, it's questionnaire. It's one page, um, maybe like ten or twelve questions. It's called the Cozine um, Pelvic Dysfun Dysfunction Protocol, um, and it asks just great questions about um, loss of urine or pain, or um, have you ever fallen on your tailbone, or um, that kind of stuff. And it, it's a great screening questionnaire for providers um, and patients, like you know, to look through and say, "Well, I actually have a lot of these," and I think it's if you have more than three of them. Um, you're more likely to have pelvic floor dysfunction. Um, and a great, it's a great kind of icebreaker, I think, for some um, ortho and sports therapists who might not have the opportunity to ask someone out in the open about their pelvic function. Uh, maybe they're treating all the patients at once or in a, there's no private place for them to talk. Um, or patients, you know, sometimes patients are just uncomfortable talking about that kind of stuff. So it's an easy way to like go through and like check, check, check a couple things and say, oh, wow, you actually checked like five of these things. Um, you'd be a great person to maybe get to go see one of our pelvic therapists or um, make kind of a continual referral side to side. Um, yeah, it's uh, you bring up some really interesting points. I'm so glad you brought up this, um, the the nerves themselves, like nerve irritation and, and listeners. Oftentimes when you're like with with the pain that you're experiencing or what what you're going through might not necessarily be that specific area that's irritated so as matt was talking about like if you had unresolved knee pain you get an mri and that, like that feels fine and they're like pushing and pulling on your knee and your knee feels fine but you're only experiencing knee pain during specific activities or instances that actually gives us a little bit more of an idea of saying okay let's look up a little bit further up the chain when i say up the chain if you're looking at the knee that means you go to the hip and then go hip to the spine all of your nerves will originate from your brain and travels down your spinal column and so if you have a if you're having some sort of dysfunction in your spine, it can actually irritate the the nerve roots, the air, the pathways that could actually reproduce that same type of discomfort or pain that could be presenting itself in a specific area. Because the truth is, is that the pain that we're experiencing, it's a chemical path, it's, it's a chemical electrical reaction 
that may or may not happen at that specific area, but it travels up the nerves and then it gets processed in our somatosensory cortex. And that somatosensory cortex will identify, okay, this is where I'm experiencing that sensation, but it's that brain that's kind of telling us this is where we think it is, but it might be completely in your brain. And we have to do a little bit of um, not that your pain or experience is imaginary, but we have to do a little bit of possible retraining in that. But I love being able, and, and you, you answered my next question for you, Matt, was being able to say, if someone was like listening to this and they're like, okay, I think I need to look into uh, possibly pelvic floor physical therapy or rehab. And it's like, how, how do I figure out if I'm a candidate for it? I love the fact that you brought up this um, cozy pelvic dysfunction screen protocol, which um, listeners, I'm going to try to find that and see if we can find something online so we can put it into the show notes. So then that way you can take it. So if either the person that you're working with, um, whether it be a a physician uh, person, like whoever you're working with to deal with your issues, if they haven't brought this up, you can answer this question, these questions on your own uh, in a low threshold, less stress-free environment. And then that way it can kind of point to point you in the right direction. Um, I'm so glad you brought that up because we need to be able to have those screens. And especially with physical therapists now, we are being more in the lines, as you said, like the kind of like the primary person. Uh, I think it, it might be all 50 states now that physical therapists can actually work with people via what is called direct access, where we're able to actually work with someone without actually needing a doctor's referral. And that actually requires us as physical therapists to be aware of one red flags, but also those things that we know are, should be referred out. Um, and, uh, or that we'd be able to address ourselves or it's something that's outside the scope of our practice. And that is, uh, what the, the, the new, like we'll say over the past five to 10 years, when we were in school, Matt, like we were, we were kind of at the forefront of having that direct access and being able to truly be able to screen and assess, you know, what is outside of the scope or what is within our scope. Um, sorry, that was a lot right there. But my question for you is now at this point, right, we have so much information. I'm so thankful for you to be able to share this with the listeners, because again, it's something that no one really talks about. So if we're talking about action steps, right, we want to be able to have people leave these podcasts with some sort of action or some sort of clarity. Um, I this is going to be a little different in regards to like, how do we, like, how do you fix your pelvic floor? I think that's really in the hands of a pelvic floor physical therapist, but let's talk about pelvic floor health, right? Let's talk about healthy habits. What are three actionable steps that people can take to make sure that their pelvic floor is functioning well and that they're doing what they need to do? Yeah, I think this is a great thing. And patients, you know, just awareness, I think is always like a first step. You know, if you think you have symptoms, that may, whether you're dealing with sciatic issues or a primary pelvic issue, just talk to someone, talk to, um, there's definitely pelvic providers out there who will jump on a phone call with someone and say, you know, are, am I a good candidate for this? Yes or no. Um, many things that are thought of as normal for many patients, just like go unresolved and they just linger forever. And well, that's when things kind of build into, um, other layers of symptoms, you know, so often that I treat patients and, you know, they're coming in for one thing. And, oh, I have back pain and then I'm dealing with all this pelvic stuff. And, you know, they're, if you look at the timeline of how things kind of emerged, it kind of emerged kind of progressively. And 
it, it just takes a little bit more time to unwind those. So if you see something or feel something and notice it, that doesn't feel quite right. Talk to someone. So I, I think that is maybe number one. I think number two is, is trying to find the balance between strengthening and flexibility. You know, you want to keep things moving. We want to exercise and, and just trying to balance like um, for the person who's maybe not as engaged in exercise or activity. Can I, can I build that up a little bit? The person's really engaged in exercise and activity. Um, am I taking the time to kind of turn the nozzle down at points, you know, breathing exercises or stretching or yoga, you know, just to kind of like balance bodies. Um, in terms of like all the forces that I push on it or pull on it. Um, so I think just finding some balance between things, you know, the idea of like the nineties cross training phenomenon, um, of like, um, doing multiple sports and, and that kind of stuff. I think that leads to just healthy bodies, I think in general. So it was interesting when you kind of posed this question, I was, what, what can someone do as pelvic health, you know, for health, for pelvic health specifically? And I don't think it's anything different than, you know, what you would do to keep like a healthy body in general. Um, your pelvic health is the same as the rest of you and it needs kind of variety and it needs balance. Um, and it needs to be evaluated and treated if there's something not going right. Um, so I think those are like kind of the first two things. Uh, the last thing I really talked about was like going back to our kind of start of this conversation full circles, like pressure management, um, exercise technique, uh, really trying to make sure, um, if I'm doing something that calls for me to exhale, I should do that. Um, so often people just like hold their breath and obviously powerlifting is a whole different, you know, beast, but for the average exerciser, um, so often we just like press down with that pressure management, our pelvic force take the brunt of that. Uh, and that's where we kind of start seeing problems happen. Um, I think maybe another fourth thing could be like, just take note of like what your normal bound bladder habits look like. Um, and if, if you're all of a sudden going too much or not enough, or um, there's a big change in that to get help and, and seek, you know, it's, it's hard because um, so often, like, you know, if we're talking about, you know, back, you know, call to action could be something like, you know, try this stretch or do this thing, you know, public health is a little different because um, it's so individualized. Um, and it's kind of, again, this spectrum of balance between strengthening and loading the pelvic floor, um, making your body do hard things. Um, but also calming it down and letting it move and breathing and that kind of piece too. So it, it's hard to kind of like say which, which someone might need depending on their problem, but um, just again, finding that balance, um, asking and talking to someone and then breathing pressure management, trying to exhale with, with certain activities. I love it. Those are beautiful action steps. Um, I think you like this entire theme of what we're talking about today really resonates with the general theme of uh, what this podcast is all about. And also how I approach treatment with people is being able to look into yourself and be able to say, is this different compared to what it was like even before my injury and being able to say that because um when we're working with people, we're working with people, we're working with individuals. And um, I think that's one of the big challenges with um, scientific research is the fact that when you're dealing with pain, when you're dealing with muscular function, every brain and body is unique. And so there are going to be some limitations because there are going to be some treatments that work really well for some people. There are going to be some treatments that work really well for other people, but, um, and being able to tie in to be able to say, okay, well, what are you experiencing? What are these differences? 
And it's it's going to be having this back and forth with your clinician, the person, whoever you're working with, to be able to say, what are you experiencing? How does this make you feel? Um, and I think that's a, it's a very powerful thing. And so, Matt, thank you so much for your time. I mean, we we spent probably, yeah, about an hour, like talking all things pelvic floor and how it actually relates to general function. And so for the folks who are like, okay, I think I need to communicate with a, a pelvic floor physical therapist, what's the easiest way that someone can find uh, a pelvic floor specialist in their area? That's a good question. Um, the APTA pelvic health um, section definitely has resources on finding PTs, um, Herman and Wallace, which is a large provider of education and pelvic health, um, has a directory of, of therapists. Um, and I, I think most physical therapy clinics now are, you know, people are seeing more like providers treating pelvic health. But I also think people in the public, in the physical therapy world should know where their like local provider is too. So if you're working with a therapist, um, or you have a therapist that you've worked with in the past, um, they're a great resource too. And say, Hey, you know, do you know of a pelvic health therapist? I think most, um, physical therapists at this point have, have had to refer out to this and, and have made at least a connection in the world. So, you know, just asking your, your local orthopedic therapist can help, you know, can be helpful finding someone too. Beautiful. And then last but not least, for the listeners who are like, you know what? That guy Matt knows a lot about this stuff. And I think I'm up in Portland, Maine. I think I want to ask him a couple more questions. What's the best way to get in touch with you? Sure. I mean, you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, that's how we originally met. Um, I can provide my email in the show notes. Um, but I also work in um, Scarborough, Maine. So you can definitely look me up there too. And there you have it. All things pelvic floor and how it relates to what you may be dealing with. Uh, when it comes to some unresolved issues. So Matt, thank you so much for your time. I'm really appreciative. And I think this is a, it was an awesome day to be able to share this information with everyone. You're welcome. Thanks. Thank you so much for tuning in. We hope you got some help from today's podcast. And for more info, check us out at ifixyoursciatica.com. Have a fantastic and pain-free day. No patient-therapist relationship is formed by listening to this podcast. We are not providing medical advice, and all information should be confirmed by a medical provider. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.